Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode from Childhood's Hour. I have mentioned a number of times that I was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the month of June in the year of 1978, right after I had graduated from high school. I've talked about a number of stories associated with my being baptized, especially in my interview with John DeLynn at Mormon Stories from last November. You may remember that seven-hour marathon interview that John DeLynn and I had. That was a fun experience for me, and I got to talk in some detail about the circumstances immediately surrounding my getting baptized into the LDS Church. What I have not talked about, and what I hope to go into tonight, are events from my childhood prior to being 18 years old, and events that shaped me in such a way as to make me ready to accept the gospel in 1978. I was born in 1960. My parents were both old enough to be my grandparents. My dad was 40 years old the year I was born, and my mother was 37. I was the third of three boys. My oldest brother was five years older than I, and the middle brother was two years older. Yes, I am the baby of the family, and perhaps that alone explains a lot about my personality. I was raised with almost an absolute dearth of religious upbringing by my parents. My dad was a rock-ribbed atheist. My mother, on the other hand, had been raised in a small town outside of Abilene, Texas, and so, of course, she had a good Baptist upbringing. But she became disaffected from the Baptist church and from religion in general at a relatively early age. And the reason was because the Baptist minister of the church she attended railed on and on about fire and brimstone and the fiery torment that awaited those who did not accept Jesus as their Savior. This did not sit well with my mother. And so sometime before or after she got married to my dad, on St. Patrick's Day, 1942, she had given up going to church altogether. And I'm sure that getting married to an atheist didn't help her any in that regard. I remember once when I was younger, going to my mom and asking her, what religion we were. This must have come about because of a discussion with friends about what religion they were, what church they attended. I didn't have a religion. I didn't have a church. So I went to my mom and I asked her, what religion are we? And after giving it some thought, she told me, you can just tell your friends that we are Protestant. Now, I had no idea what Protestant meant, but in retrospect, it seems that her beliefs were still specific enough to identify with Protestantism generally But absolutely, no way were we Catholic. There was one time in my entire childhood when we went to church. And it's because we never went to church that I remember this one time so vividly. It was Easter Sunday of 1968. The reason I remember that is because we moved around a great deal, which had a lot to do with my father's line of work, which was primarily at the time doing research at wind tunnels. In fact, he wrote the article on wind tunnels For a major encyclopedia, I can still remember being over in Japan on my mission, seeing that they had a complete set of volumes from this particular encyclopedia, pulling out the W section, looking up wind tunnels, seeing my dad's name at the end of the article, and feeling somehow comforted. It's hard to explain exactly why I felt comforted, but here I was over in Japan on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, way, way away from home, much further away from home than I'd ever been before, and being able to hold in my hand a book with an article in it that had my dad's name printed at the bottom, was in some way comforting to me. But as I say, that was my dad's primary line of work during my early years. When I was a boy in the 1960s, we lived primarily in Waco, Texas. But during this one school year, from 1967 to 1968, my second grade, we had moved from Waco 
over to Longview, Texas, which is over by the border with Louisiana. It was while we were living in Longview, Texas, that we ended up going to Easter services, and that's why I'm able to pinpoint it to Easter of 1968, because that's where we lived at the time, and that's the only Easter we had during the time we lived there. Now, I don't remember anything about the service. All I remember is getting ready for the service and being somewhat surprised with my other two brothers that we were going to church. Well, this was quite an adventure. We'd never been to church before, but I remember our dad sticking us in shirts with very tight collars, putting ties on us, and then lining us up one after the other in the bathroom and filling our hair with what we called greasy kid stuff. That's what my dad called it. In retrospect, I think it was a tube of Brill Cream, but everybody got a dose of Brill Cream in their hair in order to look sharp and ready to go to church. So as I say, I don't remember anything about the service, but in retrospect, I often wondered why on earth, out of all the Sundays and all the Easter's, that we had together as a family when I was growing up. Why on that particular Sunday and that particular Easter did we end up going to church? I have no idea. They didn't explain it to us. But looking back at history and looking back at the calendar, I do note that it was shortly before Easter of 1968 that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Now, my parents were not liberal activists. Far from it. They were as conservative as you can imagine. I remember my mom saying once that she was so conservative that she was to the right of Coolidge. Or maybe it was to the right of Hoover. I can't remember exactly now. It was either to the right of Hoover or to the right of Coolidge. Anyway, it didn't make any sense to me at the time. All I knew was that she was saying that she was very conservative. So I don't know if that's the reason that we ended up going to church on Easter of 1968 or if there was some other reason that my parents decided to take this unprecedented step. Whatever the reason, it didn't last long. It was that one Easter, we went to church. We never went to church after that. We never went to church before that. That was the one time that I attended church with my family as a kid. Now, prior to 1968, I had gone to a summer camp, and it was a Bible summer camp. I'm sure it was a Bible summer camp. It was while we lived in Waco. I must have been six years old at the time. And if it wasn't a Bible camp, it was definitely religiously organized because Waco is a university town. The university there is Baylor, and it is a Baptist university, and the name of the summer camp was Baylor Camp. Well, my big brother, who was 11 years old, was going to camp. He was going to go to Baylor Summer Camp. And I begged and I pleaded and I pleaded and I begged with my parents to let me go too. They thought I was too young to be going to summer camp, but I managed to wheedle my way into going. And actually, they were right. I was too young because I was not there for very long and I started getting terribly, horribly homesick. And they ended up coming and picking me up after a day or two and taking me home. But once I was home, I forgot how homesick camp made me, and I begged and I pleaded to go back to camp. So they, apparently having the patience of a saint, took me back to camp where I would get homesick again, and then they would come and get me. And this happened a number of times. I remember that one of the times I was home, I was the only kid home at the time because the other two boys were at Baylor camp. They were having a good time. They weren't having this terrible homesickness. They weren't the baby. And I remember my parents going to a drive-in movie, which I had never known them to do before or since. But apparently they couldn't get a babysitter, so I rode along in the back seat. And the movie that they went to see, I can still remember, was Dr. Zhivago. So whatever year Dr. Zhivago came out is the year this happened. Whoop, I just looked it up. Dr. Zhivago came out in 1965, so I wasn't six years old. I was five years old. No wonder I was so homesick. Oh my gosh. Anyway, Dr. Zhivago did not enthrall me. I ended up conking out in the back seat before the opening reel was over. And I remember that after camp was over, and after I had gone back and forth and back and forth between camp and home, 
my parents gave me a little book, and it was titled Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, which was a book based upon a popular song at the time by Alan Sherman about a little kid going to camp and having all sorts of horrible experiences, and they had inscribed on the front of the book to our little ping pong ball. And the words of the song went something like this. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. He developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner He got ptomaine poisoning last night after dinner All the counselors hate the waiters And the lake has alligators And the head coach wants no sissies So he reads to us from something called Ulysses Now I don't want this should scare you but my bunkmate has malaria You remember Jeffrey Hardy They're about to organize a searching party Take me home, oh motherfada Take me home, I hate Granada Don't leave me out in the forest Where I might get eaten by a bear Take me home, I promise I will not make noise or mess the house with other boys. Oh, please don't make me stay, I've been here one whole day. <laughs> Dearest father, darling mother, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me Wait a minute, it stopped hailing Guys are swimming, guys are sailing Playing baseball, gee that's better Mata fada, kindly disregard this ladder Now the reason I bring up Baylor Camp is not just to tell you all these stories, but to give you a sense of what it was like for me there. But I remember one night being in the bunkhouse or wherever it was that the boys slept at night and walking past one of the camp counselors who would have been a, a teenager. And he was in his cot and he was reading a book. And as I walked by, I saw that it was a Bible. And I saw that the page he had open had a heading at the top of the page and it was called First Kings. And I remember thinking, what a fascinating book that has a chapter in it that's all about kings. And I thought that must be a very interesting book, that Bible. But that was basically all that I remember about it. I also remember sitting around campfires with the other boys holding hands and singing, yes, Kumbaya. We really sang Kumbaya back then. But I would have to say that it's one of my earliest recollections of being exposed to religion was seeing the camp counselor with the Bible with the heading on the page, First Kings. 
1969, we ended up moving from Texas to Washington, and we lived for a number of years in apartments from the end of my third grade up until the end of my eighth grade. From 1969 up till 1975, so for a period of six years, we were living in either apartments or a rental house. My parents were not able to find a house that they wanted to buy, and I found out later that the reason why is because my mom did not want to set down roots in Washington. She was a Texas girl. She wanted to go back to Texas. And so she was never willing to actually settle down and make the commitment to living in Washington that buying a house would represent. But it was during this time period while we were living in apartments that a number of other things happened related to me and religion. While we were living in apartments, I of course made friends with other kids my age who were also living in apartments. And my best friend at the time was named Daryl Hazelwood. And he was in a religious family. It was not a Mormon family. I think it was probably a Seventh-day Adventist family. But he went to church regularly every weekend. And I remember that from time to time, he would share with me and the other kids things he learned when he was at church. There was one day when we were down by the pool at the Village Green Apartments in Kent. We weren't swimming. There weren't a lot of other people there, so it probably wasn't the summer. But we were sitting on the little chairs there by the pool area, and Daryl regaled all of us with stories that he had learned from church. And these stories had to do with the book of Revelation. And these stories had to do with the horrible, awful things that were going to be happening in day now in preparation for Jesus Christ's second coming. And he told us about some of the imagery in the book of Revelation. And I remember him talking about uh, scorpions, huge scorpions or things with tails of scorpions. And I remember taking that very literally. I think he probably did too. And he also talked about how the moon would turn to blood. And I took that very literally. And I was overcome with the fear of these things actually happening and happening very soon as he assured me they would. I remember that night or a night not long after that going to sleep and having a nightmare. And in my nightmare, I awoke from my bed. These are the worst kind of nightmares where you wake up in them and something bad happens because it's like it's not really a dream. It's really happening. In the nightmare, I woke up from my bed. I went to the window. I looked out at the moon, which was hanging in the sky. It was a crescent moon. And as I looked at the moon, it began to turn to blood, literally. And it began to dissolve away as big red drops dripped down from it. So that will give you an idea as to how literally I took the concept of the moon turning to blood. Also during this time period, I was very interested in reading Peanuts comics. I had several books that were collections of Peanuts comics. And if you're familiar with the characters in Peanuts, everybody knows Charlie Brown, everybody knows Snoopy. Most people know Lucy and Linus, her little brother. But Linus has definite religious inclinations. And every now and again, in the comic strip, he would quote scripture to somebody. And when he would quote scripture, I knew that was important. I remember watching a TV show back then called Marcus Welby, MD. And in one of the shows, there were two characters who were talking back and forth. And one of them quoted scripture to the other character. And the other character, a lady, shot back, Don't try to quote scripture to me. I can outquote you chapter and verse. And I remember thinking, that was powerful. There was something powerful about being able to quote from the Bible chapter and verse. And because of that, I thought it was important 
that I try and read the Bible. Now, the Bible is a huge book. We actually had a Bible in our house. I'm sure it didn't come from my dad. I'm sure it was an old Bible that my mother brought with her from her earlier days. She was not an atheist like my dad was, but she was still a Christian. As I say, she considered herself and me, therefore, to be Protestant, even though we didn't go to church, even though we weren't affiliated with any particular denomination. But we had a Bible in the house, and I realized and I felt that this Bible had power in it, so I should read it. But I couldn't read the Bible. I mean, my gosh, I'm 11 years old. I'm 12 years old. How am I going to read the Bible? There's nobody there to help me understand what it means. It's a huge book. It's written in this archaic language. I have no clue. So I remember one day going through the Bible and looking at the titles of all the different books and trying to find the shortest book I possibly could and one that looked reader friendly. And I found the book of Kings. Actually, there's two books called Kings in the Bible, which was a surprise to me, but those books were too long for me to even attempt. So I kept looking for a shorter book. I finally found a nice short book in the Old Testament called Ruth. And that seemed reader friendly enough. It's called Ruth. It's named after a lady. It's short. So I sat down and I made myself read the book of Ruth. And when I say made myself read, what I mean is I couldn't understand anything that it was talking about but I read the book of Ruth. And that experience certainly convinced me that I was never ever gonna read anything in the Bible beyond Ruth because of this short book, which had a friendly title, was so confusing to me that I couldn't understand anything in it. I despaired of ever reading anything else in the Bible and understanding what it meant. But I did read the book of Ruth when I was a kid. So getting back to Linus, now Linus, is not an entire book in the Bible. He would quote scripture every now and again in the Peanuts comic strip. And I could see what he was quoting and I could understand sort of what it meant. And every time he quoted scripture, which again wasn't often, but he did from time to time, I would memorize the scripture that Linus was quoting in the Peanuts comic strip. Because once again, I knew that quoting the Bible chapter and verse was important. And the one passage that I remember had to do with the New Testament where Jesus is talking and he says that when you are invited to a feast, do not take the high seats as the chief priests do, but instead take a lower seat. And then when one of the leaders says to you, friend, come up higher, then you will be exalted in the eyes of everyone at the feast. Now that's not an exact quote. I actually had it memorized when I was 11 or 12. And I remember finding my mom and wanting to show off the fact that I had memorized the scripture. I quoted the scripture to her. I gave the chapter and the verse, and I knew that because Linus had given it in the Peanuts comic strip, right? And I remember my mom looking at me in wonder and saying, we have got to get you to church. Well, I'm sure she had the best of intentions, but that actually never ended up happening. She did not get me to church. I never went to church. I was left to my own as far as my religious upbringing was concerned. As I said, we moved from Texas to Washington in 1969, and in my fourth grade school year from 1969 to 1970, we lived in a small rental house. This is actually in between apartments. But it was while we were there that I began watching a religious show on Sunday mornings by myself on TV. Now, I, like most fourth graders, loved the weekends. I hated school. I actually had a good time when I was there, but on principle, I hated school. I loved the weekends. On Fridays, I'd get home from school and it was freedom for an entire weekend. On Friday nights at 11.30, Channel 7 would show horror movies and it was called Nightmare Theater and it was hosted by a guy who dressed up like a vampire to introduce the different movies. Now, I want you to sit back, relax, lose your grip on reality and watch with me our movie. 
and it was a double feature every Friday night. And I would stay up and I would watch the first feature, but I could never stay up long enough to watch the second feature. I would actually nod off while watching the movies, which meant that I stayed up probably till around one o'clock in the morning on every Friday night. But on the other hand, Saturday morning was cartoon time. And my very favorite cartoon was the new Pink Panther show. And that started at seven o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. Well, I'm 10 years old. I don't get to sleep until one o'clock in the morning. I have to get up to watch the Pink Panther at seven. And I didn't have an alarm clock. So what I did at the time was I developed a method of waking myself up on Saturday morning. And what I did was, I have no idea where I got this idea. Maybe I came up with it myself. Is that before I went to sleep, At about one o'clock on Friday night, technically Saturday morning, but before I went to sleep, I would repeat in my head over and over, wake up at five minutes till seven, wake up at five minutes till seven, wake up at five minutes till seven, and then I'd go to sleep. And sure enough, every Saturday morning, I would wake up, I would look at the clock, and hey, it's five minutes till seven. I've got time to jump out of bed, throw on some clothes, plant myself in front of the TV, and turn it on and watch the Pink Panther. So as I say, Saturday morning was wall-to-wall cartoons. But Sunday morning was different and disappointingly different, I must say, because there were no cartoons on Sunday morning. What is a 10-year-old kid to do? Well, there was a show of marginal interest to me. Remember, this is in the age of Ivan Tours Productions when he is producing TV shows like Doctari, like Gentle Ben, like Flipper, all those shows I loved. Well, there was a show that was similar to that, but it wasn't quite up to that quality. It was produced in Australia, I believe, and it was about the adventures of a little kangaroo. And it was called Skippy, the Bush Kangaroo. And I still remember the theme song. So I would watch Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. But before Skippy the Bush Kangaroo came on, there was a religious show. And it was called The Voice of Calvary. It was a half-hour show, and I believe the minister's name was Jack MacArthur. And anyway, he would appear on the screen, and he would talk to the audience and talk to me because I'm watching the TV set. And he would give a sermon about something related to Christianity, of course. And at the end, there was this older woman who would get up and sing some sort of closing hymn in a very warbling voice. I didn't really find that very appealing, but I was glued to the screen every Sunday morning in fourth grade, listening to Jack MacArthur and the voice of Calvary. I was the only one up at this time. Everybody else is asleep. So it's just me, Radio Free Mormon, sitting on the floor of the living room in this rental house in Kent, Washington, watching the voice of Calvary. But once again, I'm not sharing this information with anybody else. Nobody else knows I'm doing this for crying out loud. We're not going to church, but I'm watching this religious programming and I feel good inside about watching it. I don't really understand everything that Pastor MacArthur was talking about, but I know that I felt good inside while he was talking and while he was preaching. And that was part of my religious development, I think. Not only the exposure to this kind of religious programming, but also the fact that I was even open to or willing to or interested in watching this kind of religious programming. Oh, there was another time, a few years later, I was probably 12 years old, Billy Graham was a big name back then, and he would go around from place to place and he would give these crusades, and they would be televised on TV. And I remember once, I was probably 11 or 12, watching Billy Graham 
and his crusade on TV and listening to him preach. And at the end of every crusade, of course, he would give an altar call where he would ask everybody at the stadium, in the crusade, or at home watching on TV, if they hadn't accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, to do so now, to get down on their knees and to accept Jesus as their Savior. And I got down on my knees when I was 11 or 12, and as Billy Graham was praying on TV, I accepted Jesus as my personal savior. And once again, I'm doing this as a kid. Nobody else is around. None of the other members of my family are around. This is a solo activity for me. Nothing happened afterward as a result. I didn't start going to church, but I'm sure Billy Graham encouraged it. I just didn't have the wherewithal to be able to do it because I'm a kid. In addition to the Voice of Calvary and in addition to the Billy Graham Crusade, I had other exposure to religions and specifically the Jehovah's Witness religion. During the summer of 1972, I was 12 years old, and me, the middle brother, and my mom spent the entire summer at a little rental in a place called Rockport, Texas. It was on the coast. It was probably down the coast from Corpus Christi a ways, and it was during a period when my parents were separated, and this was the worst summer of my childhood. I didn't know anybody in Rockport, Texas. We didn't go to church. I didn't have any exposure to other kids. It wasn't an apartment building. So I had absolutely nothing to do. And what ended up happening is that I would stay up late at night to watch TV until it signed off. Yes, in those days, TV stations actually signed off the air at around midnight or one o'clock in the morning or whenever their regularly scheduled programming was complete for the day. And then they would play the national anthem and it would go to static. Well, I ended up sleeping in later and later in the day and staying up later and later at night until I got into a very bad cycle where I was staying up pretty much all night and sleeping pretty much all day. But during the night in the wee small hours of the morning after there was no more TV, I would go into my bedroom and I would turn on this little transistor radio and I would hear a top 40 station which came in somewhat weekly, probably from Corpus Christi. And I would listen to those songs every night from probably around one o'clock until five o'clock or six o'clock or whenever it was in the morning that I finally fell asleep. I was extremely lonely. I was extremely isolated during that time period, which is why I call it the worst summer of my childhood. Here I am with my mom and one of my brothers out in BFE, Texas. But as a result, even today, if one of those songs that was a hit song back from the summer of 1972 comes on the radio, I can name the song, name the artist and say, that's from the summer of 1972. Songs like Billy Withers singing Lean On Me, Gilbert O'Sullivan singing Alone Again Naturally, Brandy by Looking Glass, Daddy Don't You Walk So Fast by Wayne Newton, and the instrumental Popcorn by Hot Butter. All of those and many more I remember from the summer of 1972. But it was also during this time period that I came into contact with a book that was written by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is why I'm talking about the summer of 1972. I don't know how this book got into the house. Maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses came by and dropped it off. That's probably the most likely. But it was a little blue hardback book. And on the front were the words, The Truth That Leads to Everlasting Life. Well, this was an interesting book to me. I actually read this book. Unlike the Bible, I could understand what was written in this book. And so that was my first exposure to the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I remember getting to the part in the book where it said that things of the occult or the supernatural were of the devil. And if you had books regarding the occult or the supernatural or anything else that this book described as originating with Satan, it was best to destroy them and preferably to burn them because if you just throw them away, somebody else could pick them up later on and they could be influenced by Satan. Well, at the time, I had a little paperback book. It was from the grocery store and it dealt with 
Numerology, I believe it was. This is one of those little books at the checkout line in the grocery store. They have them up there in the racks. And I think that it dealt with numerology. And I think I asked my mom, can I get that book? And she says, sure, fine. So I got the book. I had it. And I remember that when I read this part in the Jehovah's Witnesses book, I understood that it was talking about numerology. Frankly, it probably said numerology in black and white. So I, being a very dutiful and very observant and very faithful young man, I took my little paperback book on numerology, I took it outside, and I burned it. So that was my first exposure to the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I will have further exposure with them later on in my teen years. But before I get to that, I want to talk about one more episode that happened when I was a kid. I was probably six years old at the time. And what would happen was, during the summer, my parents would go on vacation. And being good parents, they took their three boys with them. And our regular destination was not to Disneyland or any place like that. Instead, we would drive from Waco, which is in the center of Texas, all the way down to the southern point of Texas, where it meets Mexico. And down there is a little town called Brownsville, and there's a little island off the coast there, and it's called Padre Island. And that is where we would go every summer for a week or so when we lived in Waco. And while we were down at Padre Island during the summer, my dad would take us three boys out on a boat to do some deep sea fishing. And there was a little boat that was run by a guy named Captain Collie, and that was the name that was on the boat. And we would go out on Captain Collie's boat into the Gulf of Mexico, and as I say, do some deep sea fishing. And I'm putting that kind of in quotes. We would go out fishing on Captain Collie's boat. I remember one day we were fishing for skipjacks, and I guess there's something special you have to do when you're fishing for skipjacks. It might involve trolling. I think it did involve trolling. And I remember my big brother had a skipjack on his line. Now, a skipjack is kind of a long skinny fish and they're called skipjacks because they will skip out of the water pretty high but my big brother had a skipjack on the line and I remember watching it and cheering him as he's trying to reel it in and the skipjack on the line would jump out of the water and it would flash in the sun and at one point the skipjack made this huge jump out of the water it must have been at least six feet and I remember watching it as it got to the top of its leap and right up behind it and underneath it came whooshing this huge shark and the shark grabbed the skipjack in its mouth, snapped its jaws shut, which cut the fishing line immediately, and then the shark splashed back into the water and slowly went swimming under the boat. I remember that experience to this day. But the reason I bring up Captain Collie is because of another experience I had, which had to do with religion, though I didn't really know it at the time. As I say, my dad was extremely conservative, but it was on this particular day that I learned that that did not mean the same thing as being a bigot. Now, once again, I'm probably six years old, maybe seven years old. I don't know anything about religion. I don't know anything about Christians. I know even less about Jews. I don't even know what a Jew is. But the fishing day is done. The boat has come back to port, and now we are going to take our fish, and we're going to clean them. And there is a dock there, and at the end of a dock is a spigot that comes up, and you can turn it on, and then you clean your fish, and you take them away. But I think it was one of Captain Collie's sons who was manning the spigot and helping people clean their fish. It may not have been his son. It might have been just an older teenager, possibly 20 or early 20s, who was there and helping out with people cleaning the fish. And we were waiting in line to clean our fish. And there was another guy in front of us. And this other guy was taking a very long time to clean his fish. I don't know what was going on with him. But he got done and walked away. We moved forward to take his place. And this young man at the spigot expressed his displeasure with this first guy who had just walked away by saying to my dad in confidential tones, he must be a Jew. Now, I'm behind my dad at the time. I hear this other kid say to my dad, he must be a Jew. 
Once again, I have no idea what a Jew is, but I do, <laughs> but I do know what it means when my dad gets mad. And frankly, <laughs> because when you're a kid, you develop a spidey sense about when your dad gets mad. And what I remember is even though I'm behind my dad, this kid says to my dad, he must be a Jew. And all of a sudden the temperature, which is probably around 100 degrees there out on that dock during that sunny summer day at the south of Texas, what I know is that the temperature went down about 30 degrees like that. And I knew that my dad was very angry. My dad didn't say anything about it to this kid, but I knew he was very upset. Not only the temperature change, but how he was talking. Not what he was saying, but how he was saying it. And I knew that this kid had said something, calling this guy a Jew, that made my dad very, very mad. So once again, it's only in retrospect that I'm able to put two and two together now that I actually grew up and found out what a Jew is and that this kid was making a racial and religious slur against this other guy and that my dad got very upset with it. That's how I can look back and understand what was going on and that my dad, conservative as he might have been, was no religious bigot and he was no racial bigot either, which once again may account for why it was that the one time we went to church was Easter Sunday shortly after Martin Luther King Jr., was assassinated. Okay, back to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I told you about the book that I read in the summer of 1972. Well, we grow up, I go to junior high school, I go to high school. Well, my brother Cam, who's two years older than I am, we went to high school at the same time. And Cam ends up becoming interested in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the reason he became interested in them is because when he was walking from room to room at the high school between classes, he would pass through a hallway at the gym and off the hallway was the laundry room. And there was a janitor there. And this janitor was a Jehovah's Witness. And he decided to strike up an acquaintance with my brother and introduce him to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So Cam ends up studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses, to their credit, require a person before being baptized and joining the Jehovah's Witnesses and becoming a member, they actually have to study for a year, I think it is, on a weekly basis so that they can learn what it is that Jehovah's Witnesses are about and they can know what it is they're getting into. At least a good deal more than the Mormon missionaries teach investigators about the LDS church who have about six discussions that they need to teach an investigator before they are baptized. And that can take a lot less time than a full year. But I think it was during my senior year in high school, it might have been my junior year, that Camp was studying every Saturday morning with a fellow who was a Jehovah's Witness. And Cam did not have his driver's license yet. So I was tasked with driving Cam every Saturday morning over to his meeting at this guy's house to study for about an hour about Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was somewhat interested at first, I mean, what are my options? I can sit out in the car for an hour and wait for Cam, or I can go inside and listen to what it is he's being taught. So initially, I went in with Cam, and I listened to what he was being taught. And at one point, I remember asking a question of this guy who was teaching Cam, this Jehovah's Witness. And the question I had, I think, was pretty simple, and I think it was quite genuine. I asked why it was they don't celebrate Christmas. And when I asked that simple question, I sure didn't know what I was in for, because this fellow got very excited, he got very animated, he got very angry, and he started talking about all the evil that was in the world and associating that in some way with the celebration of Christmas and Santa Claus and all the other things that go along with Christmas. And after about 10 minutes, he ended up concluding that because of Santa Claus, his daughter could not go to the park at night without the fear of being raped. And I know that he was very, very upset. He was very emotional. I didn't feel comfortable about it. What he was saying didn't really make a lot of sense to me. So after that experience, I didn't go inside with Cam anymore. Instead, I would drive him to the house and I would sit outside in the car for an hour and wait for Cam to be done and come out so I could drive him back home. 
But that was my second experience with Jehovah's Witnesses. And my brother Cam did join the Jehovah's Witness organization. And I say organization because they do not like to be called a church. That's one of their tenets, that they are not a church, that Jesus Christ's organization was not a church. They are an organization, and they're proud of the fact to be called an organization. But that is how my brother Cam was a Jehovah's Witness at the time that I got baptized into the LDS Church in June of 1978. And of course, we had all sorts of wonderful disputations, even into bloodshed, about the subject of religion in my household between me and Cam after that. And it was for Christmas of 1978 that I gave my brother Cam a paperback copy of the Book of Mormon. Now, that was a double slam because first off, Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate Christmas. And here I am giving him a Christmas present. And number two, that Christmas present is a Book of Mormon. So I gave him this Book of Mormon. It was a paperback. It cost a dollar at the time. It wasn't a huge investment. But I was trying to get my licks in for the Lord any way I could. And I remember a couple weeks after that, going down to his room. His bedroom was downstairs. We're living in a house at this time. We finally put the apartments behind us. And there was a passage in the Book of Mormon that I wanted to show him and read to him and have him read that I thought was important for some reason or another. So I go down to his bedroom. He's sitting at his little desk there and he's writing or doing whatever it is. And I'm looking up on his bookshelf and I'm trying to find the copy of the Book of Mormon I gave him. And I'm seeing all these other books, all these Jehovah's Witnesses books, but I can't find the Book of Mormon. And I say to Cam, I said, Cam, do you know where that Book of Mormon is? And he goes, no. And I look some more and I can't find it. I said, do you know where that Book of Mormon is? He goes, no. And then all of a sudden, I remember back to that book I read in the summer of 1972 and about how it says to burn things that are satanic. And I remembered how I burned that little booklet about numerology. And the light went on in my head and I said to Cam, you burned it. You burned it, didn't you? And he's quiet. See, the thing about Cam is he can't tell a lie. He's just that kind of guy. And especially since he's a Jehovah's Witness now, he really can't tell a lie. So he's quiet. So I interrogate him further. You burned it. You burned that copy of the Book of Mormon I gave you, didn't you? And he said, well, yes. And I went on for a brief tirade in self-righteous indignation that he would burn this copy of the Book of Mormon that I gave him as a Christmas present in 1978. I was all fire and indignation about that. I don't know what I expected. I don't think I actually expected him to read it and join the LDS church. But I remember challenging him at one point to read it and his response being, well, I don't have to get into the mud to know it's dirty. Ugh. That made me so furious because it seemed to me an effective way of blocking a person from learning anything about any other religion or anything that might contradict their own religion. And at the time, the Mormonism that I was immersing myself in was teaching its members, at least this is my recollection of the teachings I was hearing from the leaders in the LDS church, was that we should learn all we could about other religions because it would help us appreciate the truth more. And that to me sounded like a much more secure position, a position where you're secure enough in your own religious beliefs to have your members study other religions because it will help you appreciate the truth of those religious beliefs that you have all the more. And seeing Cam as a Jehovah's Witness being taught not to look at any other religion struck me as very insecure. That they were afraid that if their members looked at other religions, they might leave the Jehovah's Witness. And I remember seeing that as a very, very positive aspect of Mormonism and a very, very negative aspect of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is why it is that I respond so viscerally when over the last four decades or so, I have seen what I perceive as a shift in the LDS church where more and more they are counseling, advising, warning, admonishing their members not to look at any teachings about the LDS Church outside of those produced by the LDS Church, those approved by the LDS Church. Anything that is said about the LDS Church 
on the internet or in any other form that is not correlated and approved is treated with suspicion and that information is described as being full of half-truths and distortions. It was through my exposure to the Jehovah's Witnesses that I learned that they actually frowned on higher learning. They do not have a university. They do not encourage their members to go to college. In fact, they actively discourage their members from going to college because they are so concerned that if they go to college and they learn more things like about biology, especially, they will end up discarding the tenets of the Jehovah's Witnesses and leave the organization. And here, I certainly have to give it to the LDS Church. Not only does the LDS Church encourage higher education, it even has its own university system. So, That's about all I have for tonight. There is another important story that I do need to tell you from my childhood. It is a very formative story in my childhood. It is not a story I talk about very much. And when I tell you that it involves my being sexually molested when I was 10 years old, I think you'll understand why it is. I don't tell it very much. But there's something that's telling me, maybe it's the Holy Ghost whispering in my ear. There's something telling me that I do need to tell you about that story. And that is what I will tell you on the next podcast. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.